This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 10th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, staff writer Paul Vusen talks about plans for NASA's first visit to the moon in 50 years and a quick succession of missions to follow. After that, we have researcher Eileen Rosler. She discusses a science robotics paper on the benefits of making robots that look and act like people. Now we have staff writer Paul Vusen. He wrote this week on NASA's plan for some quick and dirty moon missions. Hi, Paul. Hello. There's some interesting backstory to this. Why NASA's first visit to the moon in 50 years is going to be done in collaboration with private companies. How did this become the moon mission approach for NASA? It all goes back to this Lunar X Prize that Google sponsored a decade and a half ago that got all these startup companies and other groups, nonprofits, interested in building a, a cheap lunar lander. None of them succeeded by the deadline. And, you know, it was only a $20 million prize, which is... Just $20 million. Yeah, kind of chump change when it comes to, you know, yeah. doing things in space. But that spurred a lot of free development and ideas. And then when uh, the Trump administration came in, Four and a half years ago, with this interest in returning to the moon, it presented an opportunity for Thomas Zerbukin, who is the head of NASA science, who came in under Obama late in the second Obama term to harness these new companies and say, hey, can we uh, pay you to take some instruments to the moon fast? One of your sources raised this interesting question. Are these missions or are these landers with instruments strapped to them? The first ones are pretty much landers with instruments strapped to them. The traditional NASA mission has kind of elaborately conceived as a project scientist, a lot of scientific knowledge in-house in the design of the lander. The scientists set the requirements for the lander of will it pass through the Van Allen belt or not? And with these, especially the first ones, the company is trying to coordinate these 15 instruments strapped onto it, but it's all a bit more catch as catch can less coordinated, but fast and cheap. How soon might one of these landers end up on the moon? The original goal was this year. The first two landers have slipped to next year. But you know, by next year, I think there are three scheduled to 
land. And, you know, it seems fairly credible that it could happen by that point. So that seems really fast for a lunar mission, for a space mission. Is it really because of the commercial involvement or, you know, what's so different about now than, say, 10 years ago? Is the commercial involvement? It's just NASA doing things a different way, which we've seen with their sponsorship of getting cargo and now astronauts to the space station. This is kind of moving that same type of method where they're dictating less the requirements to the companies and the companies kind of maintain ownership of the lander and this give this Uber to the moon and <laughs> just let them move faster. And it's riskier too. NASA can't be as sure that this won't fail. But they're cheaper, so only a couple making it, a couple not making it maybe would be less of a dent in the budget. That's right. It's I mean, it's much more survivable for NASA. This is not billion-dollar satellite or spacecraft that would be lost. It'll be very bad for the companies involved if they're one of their landers fails, but for NASA itself, it's a blip in the budget. What about the scientific questions that are going to be addressed with the measurements these instruments take? Who decides? which scientific questions are answered, which are the most important. It seems like that would be part of mission planning at NASA. NASA solicited their own scientists and outside scientists for what instruments you have nearly ready to go, especially for the first few missions. So you know, a lot of that built off stuff already in development, almost sitting on the shelf, had been used for a sounding rocket or a spare flight copy. And there's good science that's going to be done from the first mission on some of it is also just testing instruments that will then be relied upon for future missions, more ambitious missions. The issue of water on the moon seems to have risen to the top, looking across all the different instruments and uh, scientific questions you mentioned in your story. What are the, the big questions about water on the moon? In the past couple of decades, a series of orbiters have detected what seems to be water, especially on the poles, where there are these regions where the sun never reaches. When you're in the sun, it's very hot on the moon. And so water goes like that. But it seems like water can build up in these permanently shadowed regions. Signals of smaller concentrations of water have been seen across the lunar surface. And one scientist calls it space dew. I love this mechanism for how this might be <laughs> forming. This is really cool. So, you know, you, you don't think of rocks having lots of oxygen in them necessarily, but they do have a lot of oxygen in them. And so when the solar wind or Earth source type solar wind, these ionized hydrogen, hydrogen ions bombard the moon, you have this H coming in and it <laughs> hits that O and, <laughs> you know, it can seems like perhaps make water, the short lived ambient water and dancing across the equatorial surface. And maybe some of that water can is energized enough to jump down to the poles and get stuck there. But also it might be sourced from early in the moon's history or from comets. A lot of this work will be also teasing out just how much water there is and where it came from. What kinds of things are the landers and their instruments going to do to figure these questions out? So there's this one suite of instruments that are going to end up on the Viper rover, which is a NASA-built rover that's going up being carried by one of these lunar landers. There's one instrument that counts the number of neutrons coming into it. And, you know, if hydrogen is around from water, it absorbs some neutrons. So you'd see a dip in the count. There's spectrometers that can, you know, image water. And there's going to be drills. You can drill down, pull some of that regolith lunar soil back up, and then see what the water that might have been trapped in it, the ice will then vaporize, you know, instantly, and it can be caught by the spectrometer or seen by this other spectrometer. So they're looking at these 
weirdly tall piles of lunar dirt because of low gravity and high friction. On a lander, you can do this like one spot, but eventually the rover will be able to do this for 100 days, a bunch of different sites. What other scientific questions might be attacked with this new lunar armada that we're going to be seeing? As these missions have developed, they have gotten a bit more coordinated, a bit more kind of strategic in the science goals. And so there are missions that are going to, a few years from now, investigate what are called lunar swirls. These magnetic anomalies are associated with these swirled patches on the lunar surface. And the moon does not have a magnetic field, but these are weirdly magnetized. And the there are a couple ideas for why this form. They've never been visited by lander or rover. So this will go explore one of those. And another one is going to return a seismometer to the far side of the moon that is going to run for a while. We haven't had a seismometer on the moon since Apollo. They just shut off the seismometer that was running when Apollo ended in the 70s. Also a small radio telescope that will sit on the far side kind of looking in the quiet, you know, shadowed from Earth's radio noise and looking out into a solar system, galaxy beyond, into astronomical domains I don't really understand. (laughs) Great. This is very exciting. (laughs) We're talking about 2022, multiple landers going to the moon, and then maybe many, many more in the next few years. Is this going to be a decade of moon science? The Chinese have already kind of started. And there are others like the Russians, the Israeli small company that attempted a lunar lander landing in 2019 is coming back, as is India, which had a failed landing in 2019, and Japan as well. Really, you're going to see a huge number of lunar missions happening, including the U.S., where I don't think a lot of people realize that we're going to have two lunar landers a year at least going uh, starting next year. Great. Thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure. Paul Vusen is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Eileen Rosler about the pluses and minuses of anthropomorphic robots. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Humans have been making robots that look like us anthropomorphic robots for a long time. But why? Does it help us work together? Does it keep us from fearing robots? This week is part of an ongoing series on human-robot interactions. Publishing in Science Robotics, Eileen Rosler and colleagues looked at why it might be a good thing for robots to look like us. Hi, Eileen. Hi, Sarah. So as I said, for a long time, Robots have looked like us. I'd say that movies and fiction have been far ahead of us, like C-3PO. But times are changing. More and more human-like robots are appearing in the world with us. And the thought is this might make it easier for people to work with them or to trust them. So why don't we know why making robots look like people is a good thing? That's an extremely global question. Yeah. And 
best we start is maybe to say that look like humans is not all about anthropomorphization or anthropomorphism, because making human replicas is another question than my research question. I'm more interested how we can use less salient aspects like human-like communication or movement behavior or having like eyes, but maybe more not that stereotypically exactly like human eyes, but more that you see what it's about. Or facial features work quite good as well. Does this have something to do with the idea that if it looks like a person, you know how to interact with it? We are real experts in human-human interaction. Those are scripts we have perfectly overlearned. And it could be really beneficial if we can use those scripts with completely unfamiliar technologies. Because otherwise we don't know how to, for example, communicate with a robot. This is the basic idea behind anthropomorphic features, even though they are not perfect replicas. If a robot is occupying the same space as us and those spaces are designed for us, maybe it's better for the robot to move like us and to have the same needs as us. That's an ongoing discussion. It's kind of this joke, uh, birds are made perfectly for the air, but our airplanes do not look exactly like birds. Of course, we have like formal congruencies, but it's not exactly the same. So how can we make best of both? Make it technology, but use, for example, limbs where they are needed for stairs or stuff like this. That's a double-edged sword. So make it perfectly working without having human restrictions. So the work we're going to talk about today, what's been published in Science Robotics, is a meta-analysis where you took many studies of human-robot interactions and tried to extract this benefit of robots looking like people. Now, for the studies that you included, what kinds of questions were the researchers asking? Were they focused on this issue as well? They were all focused on human-robot interaction and the role of anthropomorphism. It's often about tiny features, like having a change in communication, having a change in facial features, maybe even just describing the robot in a human-like manner, if I describe a robot with a personality and a name. The question was always, is it beneficial? Or is it maybe enhancing a smooth and good performance? Every study had two different degrees of anthropomorphism. So we can really compare if increasing it makes the interaction more likable, more affectional, even at least a better performance. Overall, was there a positive effect of making robots like people in some way? Yes, there was a positive effect. It was as expected. Are people more trusting of a robot that looks like a person? Does the human just not mind the fact that they're doing something with a robot because it looks more like a person? Which thing was helped by the anthropomorphic features? Now it's getting interesting, to be honest, because overall we found positive effects. When we have a look at more task-related aspects like safety, even though it's, it's perception as well, or task performance, the effect is not there. And this is interesting because we find it for more social aspects, we find this positive effect, but we do not completely find it for aspects like safety or task behavior. The benefit tends to be if the human is meeting up with the robot in a social setting, 
it depends on the task because social settings have tasks a lot of times as well. If you imagine like where you have emotional engagement as aim, it's a task aim. And so there it seems to be really beneficial. But when we have a look at more technical tasks, maybe like in service and industrial domain, it's not that clear. In the service domain, this is most interesting, but it's associated with less studies there. We do not find any positive effect. And in the industrial domain, not that conclusively as people thought. In the service setting, the robots are kind of on this border between being a tool and a teammate or a colleague. Can you talk about that transition, that border zone? Yeah, this idea is really omnipresent, I would say, because when you have a look at earlier robot generations, they were caged away. They were simply coexisting with humans, for example, in the industrial domain. A robot was a clear tool and the human was operating it or maybe working together, but only in coexistence. Right now, we really see a shift in this coexistence to more cooperative and even collaborative work environment. And because of this shift in the direct interaction, it was often assumed that making a robot more like a team partner than a tool would be beneficial. And yeah, anthropomorphism can be used for this idea to make it not look like a tool, but like a team partner. But the question arises when it facilitates um, the whole interaction and when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. What would be a good example of when you don't want a robot to be seen as a partner? For example, do you want your robot to be a partner when it's working on, we call it dull and dirty work? Hmm. Isn't it sometimes better that it's just a tool there. So there are anecdotal evidences, but for example, in the military, they should use robots never as team partners, but as tools, because the aim of those, for example, bomb robots is to explode and get like the safe environment for humans. But if we anthropomorphize them, it can be really safety critical. Yeah. I mean, this is a really extreme example for it. But in other work domains, it's the same. Whenever we use a robot in environments which might even be kind of dangerous for humans, we should not be emotionally attached to them because then the humans could do something to kind of save the robot. This is, of course, really a safety issue. Going back to the study here, were there any particular features of these anthropomorphic robots that had more benefits? When people think about anthropomorphism, they think about appearance. And we only find a positive effect of anthropomorphic appearance on perception. Things like likability, intelligence, safety. We do not find this positive effect of appearance for attitudes like trust and acceptance, for example, for affect and for behavior. And this is interesting because this is the mostly used anthropomorphic feature way more effective was, for example, communication or even multiple implementation because multiple implementations are good because everything kind of fits together then. And this task and behavior fit then again is uh, beneficial. I want to circle back to what you said about the service setting. So this is, I assume, going to a restaurant and being served by a robot, but maybe I'm wrong about that. And you were surprised that you didn't see this effect of anthropomorphic features on the perception of people or their ability to accomplish their task. The service sector is is an interesting one because it combines 
aspects from the social domain as we interact with those robots in a really human-like environment. But it also has aspects of, for example, the industrial domain, where it's all about task performance. And this is why we did not have any real hypothesis about how anthropomorphism is affecting the service domain. But it was interesting that we found no clear evidence for a positive effect. But it is also correlated to the missing studies because the social and the industrial domain are at least researched a little bit better, but the service domain is still behind those. And there's a huge lack for future research. Another area of missing research is on outcomes. You mentioned in the paper that there's a bias for testing effects of anthropomorphism on human perception of robots. But there are other important outcomes that have gotten less attention, less research especially behavior. I think the most important outcome for human-robot interaction is the interaction itself. There are, of course, aspects or studies or robots or settings where perception is important. But when it comes to the interaction in the real world, we're interested in how smooth and pleasurable the actual behavior is. The task performance, is it making the task easier for the human? That would be a great example with predictive eyes, for example. Just like having eyes looking around is not really helping the task, but having predictive eyes like human ones might make the task performance better. It's the same for social behavior. So there are opportunities to really affect behavior, but we found that this is still a research gap as well. Would you say... This is an argument for generally making robots look like people or being much more targeted about when we do that and why we do that. With our results, we can really use anthropomorphism in a targeted manner. Before we had this analysis, it was a lot about, yeah, okay, we have those results in, for example, the social domain. This might be the same in the service or industrial domain. Even though this is not my main research, this has good implications for our society because making robots more human-like does always have ethical and social issues in line with it. Having in mind those ethical and social issues, isn't it kind of great to know that we don't need to make industrial and service robots really more human-like? Have you met a lot of robots? Yes, you <laughs> Yes, I've met a few robots and really different ones from social robots like Paro. It's a seal robot. It's fluffy. <laughs> and so it's the complete opposite of my uh, lab robots because I'm working a lot in the industrial domain with, uh, for example, Sawyer or Panda. Those are one-armed industrial cobots. Or Pepper. And now they are both um, social robots with really pronounced anthropomorphic features. So yeah, I've met a a few of them already. <laughs> What's your favorite robot? Hard question. <laughs> oh, wow. From the science fiction one, I really love R2-D2. Oh, yeah. It's such a cool combination of features because it has some anthropomorphic features, like especially the context, the description as a friend, and they're together on missions, but it's kind of zoomorphic in its communication because it's just like beeping. Yeah. And I love the combination because it's such a good illustration of that features can be symbiotically and be a perfect match at the end. 
but it's not working in our real life. So from my real robots, I think I prefer Panda. Panda is just a one arm robot, but it's, I really like the precision. Whenever you do research, it's really on point. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you, Sarah. Eileen Rosler is an engineering psychologist, researcher, and lecturer at TU Berlin in the field of human-robot, human automation, and human-AI interaction. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.